Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we are joined by David Bonson of the Bonson Group. You may know him from There Is No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, as well as many of his other books, his articles in National Review, Forbes, and what has become possibly my favorite podcast, Capital Record. Thanks so much for joining me today, David. Well, thanks so much for having me and thank you for the kind words course. Um, you've given me wonderful listening material for uh, many, many hours. So I hope we can uh, we, we can transfer that some to the listeners today. Um, well, the reason I wanted to have you on was, uh, as we talked about just before we hit record, oftentimes people on the on the more liberal side will offer these grand visions. And, you know, without a vision, the people perish. People want something to aim at, something to uh, to look up to. They want a direction. But in the words of, uh, oh, who was it? William F. Buckley, the conservative is somebody who stands athwart history and yells, stop. But today, um, I want to talk about some some positive uh, things that we could propose from our side, which are conservative in nature. And I want to begin with uh, the first things, with uh, maybe things which are more philosophical or moral or anthropological. Uh, that we begin our economic analysis with. So I know that's something that you typically do as well. So I'll give you the floor and uh, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Well, look, I, I think that um, there is a, a sense in which all people ideally would be uh, arguing from the vantage point of first things, first principles, and that their vision for society and the recommendations they make in terms of policy would uh, come from some foundational belief system. Um, ideas have consequences, and uh, the ideas can be good ones, so they can be bad ones. But when we see consequences to things in society, uh, the consequences are generally good or bad because the ideas were good or bad. Now, sometimes, of course, you can have a good idea with bad execution that leads to a bad consequence. But I think that that's the exception, not the rule. I think most of the time, bad ideas create bad consequences and good ideas create good ones. And the principles from which I view the world, principles from which I formulate my vision for society um, are principles that I think are entirely intelligible, coherent, defensible. And and that's where I think a vision uh, for society should come. When you talk about the left versus right, the left has an embedded advantage in that uh, their vision um, is able to flirt with utopianism to some degree. It's able to flirt with certain things that um, talk about pr progress, you know, the very word progressivism. They've successfully hijacked the word liberal, uh, which is a word I believe should be ours. I think I believe in a liberal society and they do not. Yet they get called a liberal and I don't. And yet if what we're talking about is defense of liberalism, um, uh, the notion of freedom, then um, I think it's not an entirely accurate description for how liberalism is attached to the left and not the right. Uh, so all that to say that their advantage of a vision that involves a New Deal, a Green New Deal, uh, great society, massive government expansion it lends itself to a pretty romantic depiction and portrayal. Um, I don't think the results do. I don't think the testimony of history does. 
Um, but if you're selling one of the reasons I could never run for office is a politician has to go run by saying what they're going to do for people and a politician who runs the way I would, which is all the things that I'm not going to do, uh, has very little chance of getting elected. So that's an embedded handicap that conservatives have to deal with in their vision for society. I think that's an excellent point. Um, on one side, we have the progressives. And then we also have uh, the, I don't know if it's a resurgence, or in, in any case, we have the integralists, which have been arguing more in religious circles for making the state target supernatural ends. But both of those seem to me to be very much in opposition to classical liberalism, where we value freedom for freedom's sake. Yeah, I guess I should be clear that I would have a different critique of integralism than that, because I do believe that the state was instituted by God. And I believe that its legitimacy comes from the fact that it's an institution with its own sphere as the great former Dutch prime minister and reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper taught us. It has its own sphere and, and its properties are different from the properties of family, the individual, the church. And yet I don't have a problem at all um, with the state apart from advancing a particular religion, apart from becoming a substitute for the church, and yet the state as a, a, a protector of certain moral conventions and certain uh, structures, I think it's a very legitimate. But see, I don't think that's what the integralists are after. Um, and, and I don't believe that the state, to the extent that it prosecutes crimes against murder, um, because I think murder should be a crime and the state should have that jurisdiction. And the only reason I believe murder is a crime is because I believe in the sanctity of life as defined in a defensible, ethical, absolute system uh, found in the Bible. Um, I think that the state is inseparable from religion in that sense. Yet, to the degree someone says, I don't believe in a particular religion, um, I don't think it should be prosecutable by the state. And, and uh, I think that the integralists have decided that the structure of liberalism is itself problematic, not just some of the things coming out of actors in the structure we don't like. And so, in other words, the progressives have had a bigger influence than I want in academia, and I want to use free and orderly mechanisms uh, in my own efforts of persuasion to see them be less influential in academia. Um, and yet I think that that battle of ideas is a legitimate battle where the integralists will say, no, we need to use the coercive power of the state to put the thumbs on the scale of that. And that's where I would disagree. And I don't think it's just in religious circles. I think that there is a real secularism in much of the national conservative movement as well that is frustrated and in a lot of cases, understandably frustrated, and yet has decided to speed up the process. Um, if we believe the state is behaving badly to us, our job is to instead get the state to act badly to others. And it is not what I believe is the appropriate mechanism for societal change in a, a free society. 
I think those are those are excellent points. So how exactly do we draw that line? How would you go about that? So you gave the example of institutions. Um, for instance, we have um, state funded uh, colleges. You'd, it would seem that the state would have some interest in them teaching uh, things which would uh, overall make the state flourish over the long term. And I think we could argue that they're not. So where exactly do we draw that? Is it a public-private distinction? Does it have to do with um, their role in society irrespective of whether or not they're public, public or private? Or is there some other way that you would propose knowing when we should act at all, given those things? Yeah, it's a complicated question. I would point out that I think there is, first of all, not only a public-private distinction, but a state and federal distinction. So even universities that receive governmental monies, we have to clarify if we're talking about state governments or federal government. And if the University of Texas is receiving money from the federal government, I'd like to know why and what for and why the federal government has skin in the game of funding state universities. Now, then within a local, uh, uh, particular state and as a federalist, there may be a state that says that they don't want to fund the university system of their own state. And that could be an advantage in the state, less taxes, less spending, less indoctrination. It could be a disadvantage um, because there's less options for public university. But the point is that that's what our founders intended is for states to compete with other states on, on how they're going to be structured, what they're going to be offering. So I see state funding versus the state funding, meaning federal or Washington, D.C., as two separate things. Um, but where we draw the line is, of course, the trillion-dollar question. And I'm suggesting that we don't talk about drawing the line until we have defined our first principles. And we have not come close to defining our first principles. And for those of us that want to seek change, I would also point out that uh, we are very likely best off to fight for change that will be incremental because sometimes the backlash of something happening too suddenly without the appropriate gradualism is such that you end up getting more of it than, than you started with. Um, and, and so I think that there has to be a lot of wisdom intact to how we unwind some of these things. You know, you mentioned, uh, mentioned the Bible and you mentioned the role of government there. Thinking back to the Old Testament, it happened a lot more like you described than a radical change. There wasn't a set of laws which all of a sudden caused people to actually act in a certain way. It was a lot more gradual than that. It was the cultivation of a people because changes don't stick unless the people are truly persuaded, unless the culture actually changes in a tangible way. Because if not, you do get exactly what you were talking about, that type of backlash of people. What is the phrase? Uh, those who are persuaded to get who are persuaded against their will are of the same opinion still. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree. And I, you say the Old Testament, I would argue that uh, both old and new, um, I believe, set a precedent for various substantive changes coming sometimes very gradually. And, you know, the, the line, the parable itself, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Uh, and the, it's an old Testament verse that my late father used to preach from Zechariah 4:10 says, don't despise the day of small beginnings 
So I think that the idea that the left took a hundred years for their long march through the institutions and that we think we're going to blow it all up in, in one election or in one month or one press conference is just utterly ridiculous. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to be gradual. And you do want to, once a lot of damage has been done, you do want to minimize damage in the recovery. Otherwise, it desensitizes people from what it is you're trying to fix to begin with. And if there was a surgery we could do to fix an ailment and the patient was going to die because of the surgery, nobody would do it. And so what we have to avoid is a solution that is worse than what we're trying to solve for. And yet we also need to move the needle in, in, in seeking about some improvement and resolution. And so there's, there's a lot of wisdom that is required in this whole process. Yep. Yep. Definitely. I mean, the, uh, the Jews at the time of Christ were very upset that their Messiah didn't come as somebody to upset the current political order and establish the kingdom exactly the way they wanted. The slow progression, the uh, mustard seed, as you mentioned, um, can often seem disappointing to us, but um, I don't think it should be. I think once we have a good vector in history going on, then we ought to uh, trust in divine providence a little bit more than maybe we're accustomed. Absolutely agree. So I I did want to um, zero in on one or two things, which... Um, I wish they weren't first things that we had to defend, but unfortunately they are. And one of which is uh, the role of profit and the role of uh, markets. I guess two things there. Where right now both of those are under attack. There's people who don't necessarily see markets as uh, the best tool for creating wealth. Um, some of them think that they're innately exclusionary or uh, ex exploitive or something. And some dislike the concept of profit as such. So, uh, how exactly would you go about speaking to somebody who might reject or at least hold those two things in suspicion? Well, I, I think that basic economic education is really needed when somebody says something like that. Because I think if you dig deep enough, most of the time you'll find out that people who say they're opposed to profit or the profit motive really mean that they think they're against some nebulous understanding of greed and the pursuit of profits and the and the notion of having an economy devoid of profits can only be talked about if one has no idea of what economic activity is itself of what wealth creation is what value creation is and what the meeting of human needs is and so the um profit motive the uh, understanding of human action, uh, uh, the human person as having rational faculties with instincts created by God, the uh, historical understanding of how we have advanced civilization and created a higher quality of life for people, um, all requires us to understand economic life in a certain context that would never, ever uh, speak negatively about the pursuit of profit. And of course, I do believe many on the right um, benefit from maintaining a constant reiteration, a valid and appropriate reaffirmation of our disdain for greed, for fraud, for cronyism, for corruption, for idol worship, 
uh, for for commercialism and materialism um, and superficiality that is uh, uh, soul depriving. They're, they're maintaining a, a whole entire posture um, in defense of the human person and their their uh, endeavors towards uh, flourishing is vital, is absolutely necessary. And it leaves no room for people to ignorantly assume that the pursuit of profits from which you get greater risk-taking, from which you get um, a greater quality of life for you and your loved ones, and in so doing can create a better quality of life for others, the reciprocity that is involved in profit-making, nobody will give you the revenues that result in profits if you are not meeting needs. Um, these things are just all very important. And I think they're also very basic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes it's difficult to get people to understand that maybe they don't understand. The call to humility is never, never comfortable. And I think oftentimes in schools, um, we're taught that the highest form of thinking is critical thinking, to expressly be critical of systems, of people, to try to tear down. And it puts you in the, the position of being a teacher and never a student. Um, getting people to, to slow down and learn those basics can be quite difficult. Oh, well, I agree. I, I mean, the, I think that the fact it can be difficult, though, um, is a byproduct of how important it is. And, and just as we would when teaching reading, writing, arithmetic, I think it's very dangerous to teach economics as an example, something I'm very passionate about, apart from those basics. I do not believe one can, and I certainly don't believe one should, teach the law of marginal utility or the law of supply and demand or, or various economic theorems um, before one has done the basics of understanding the human person. And because I believe economics is fundamentally the study of human action around the allocation of scarce resources, um, it therefore puts a big burden on me to totally understand the human person and what the human person was created for as a formative, basic, or early level building block in me learning economics and the various theorems and laws that all presuppose the various uh, reality about the human person um, can be better understood and better taught when we've started with those basic foundational beliefs. So what do you say to people who uh, often strawman our position saying that we only believe in, in homo economicus? the guy who creates only a, a, a rational decision matrix for every possible decision that he's going to do and executes with um, utmost rationality. The idea that everybody evaluates their own narrow self-interest and nothing more. Um, have you heard critiques that, that come from that direction? Because I, I know certainly people who begin to study economics but don't get very far can somehow walk away with an impression that that's the way that we believe all people always and everywhere indeed act. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there is a straw man that can be formulated. And as far as me being bothered by people misrepresenting the position, I think I, I 
kind of grew past that a long time ago. But I do believe it's important to give the clarification as to what um, a, a view of mankind is created with rational faculties and the capacity for reason, what it means and what it doesn't mean. And that I would argue that that critique you've outlined is actually a significant argument for my side of this issue. That to the extent one would say, you believe mankind was made of reason, and I believe sometimes mankind will act irrationally, that therefore, knowing mankind has a capacity to be unwise or irrational um, means I would want to limit the ability to accumulate power. That if, if Bill Smith and Jane Doe can act irrationally and make bad decisions, um, at least the bad decisions they make should limit the damage done versus if, I don't know, Pol Pot or Joseph Stalin or, or the Brookings Institute or Harvard University um, were to make the same irrational and ill-thought decisions. So it is the desire to blend um, the potential for mistakes, the, the uh, limited access to knowledge with power that the left wants, where what I say is, yes, to some degree, all mankind is subject to error, but which system has less downside to that error? One that is accompanied error-making decisions with significant power, including the coercive power of the state and its monopoly on violence, or one that is widely dispersed such decision-making throughout society and create an incentive system in economics that those who make good decisions benefit and those who make bad decisions suffer. And that we create an incredible regulatory apparatus out of pain and therefore facilitate risk-taking versus facilitating the um, uh, atrocious results of central planning, which are themselves a huge disincentive to risk-taking. Well, you mentioned regulations there. Oftentimes we talk about just reducing regulations or, or um, rolling some back or canceling two for every every one new regulation, for instance. Are there regulations specifically you have in mind that you would like to see changed that you think would benefit people as a whole, economic growth, um, life in uh, society in general? Well, yes, but I mean, I, I don't have a particular wish list of the one I'd start with tomorrow because what I really believe we have to do first is stop adding new regulations. And, and I do think that uh, there's some wisdom in some, um, you know, lawmaking principle or activity that says, okay, wherever we do need a new regulation, it will only be allowed to be passed if we get rid of two or get rid of five. Um, that right now the system is so corrupt and, and so inefficient that we're not even referring to, hey, let's change this code or this code or this code to, to move the needle. We're talking about a system that is just so incredibly marinated in uh, grift and conflict and inefficiency um, that it's staggering. So as a matter of principle, um, it's very easy for me to find where I think regulations should be and should not be. Um, and certainly there are low hanging fruits out there in terms of 
where uh, deregulation in the energy sector, the financial sector, and capital formation could be needle moving in society. But to even use those as examples and dare to suggest that there isn't a hundred examples I could give in any sector of the economy would be um, uh, unfortunate. So right now, a lot of people are saying in the banking sector that there wasn't enough regulation, that uh, there should have been more to stop even the small and regional banks from becoming illiquid. Um, What's your take on that? I, I, I worry you've been asked a thousand times in the last week or two. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's nobody is saying it seriously. Those who are saying it are being incredibly duplicitous. There's a really disingenuous um, angle to take that after the you know an incredibly regulated and overly regulated and poorly regulated ecosystem like financials, um, and the financial crisis happens despite 300 regulatory bodies overseeing all this. And then they say, okay, well, now we're going to fix it for good. And here's this Dodd-Frank, and it's going to cost a trillion dollars, and it's going to codify a lot of things, but at least we're going to know that we are permanently uh, stabilizing the inherently unstable uh, reality of our financial system. And then, lo and behold, other things miss the regulators, bad things happen, and the regional bank world has a a week or two like what we've been living in and they say yeah the problem was we didn't have enough regulation um i think at at some point uh the people have to say like the famous who song they won't get fooled again Mm -hmm. so it's not just that we need 301 regulatory bodies to be clear that's not the lucky number it doesn't appear to be no and and i think um that there is certain things that need to be more smartly regulated and there's certain things that need to be less regulated. And in financials, you have all the above. So I did have something I wanted to ask you about, specifically about Dodd-Frank. Um, I have heard, and I haven't dug into the data, but I, I bet you, you you know off the top of your head here, um, that after Dodd-Frank was passed, the creation of uh, privately created money declined and that that offset a lot of the newly created um, public money that was put in. So a lot of the people, the MNT crowd, magical money theory people, uh, claimed that you could just print money as much as you like. But to me, it seems like it was dot frank, maybe I could be wrong, that had a corresponding decrease in private money creation during that time, making it appear that we can print more money. Is that true? Well, I think part of it depends. I have to understand what you mean by some of the terms uh, what is private money creation? So when um, so when we we expand the total money supply by taking uh, narrow money, turning it into broad money through the creation of loans. Through the creation of loans. Right. Yep. So does money does not get created by deposits? It gets created by loans. Right. And it does not get created by refinancing loans. So lower interest rates stimulate more refinancings, not new financings, um, but you need new loans to increase the money base, correct? Right. So nothing did more damage to loan demand uh, than the um, over leverage and over indebtedness in society. And so to the degree Dodd-Frank put an extra cost on government, and I guess it's a culprit there, 
but nothing has done more to suppress the loan demand and the and ultimately the just drastic decline in velocity of money than the um, Keynesian formulas for treating uh, economic uh, slowdown, that the stimulus uh, remedy has become itself um, like pushing on a string. And that is even more uh, downward pressure on interest rates uh, created worse incentives to save and no and less savings equals less investment. Less investment equals less productivity. We put downward pressure on growth. And so it has been this entire uh, negative feedback loop. And I do think Dodd-Frank has something to do with it um, in the sense of perhaps people think that some of the banks are overcapitalized and are overly regulated against lending money out. But I don't think that we have banks that are unwilling or unable to lend money out. I think we have borrowers that are unable or uninterested in borrowing money for good projects. They're either bad borrowers, they're already over levered because we already have an overly indebted society or uh, the good borrowers are already fully levered. It's hard to get more juice out of a lemon at some point and good operators, good managers that have already maximized debt to income, debt to asset ratios have limited capacity for more borrowing. And those things put down pressure on loan demand and and therefore, as you say, uh, less money creation. So let me bounce something off you here, um, which might sound unorthodox at the moment, but I, I definitely like your opinion on it. We hear that much of the inflation was the result of a contraction of supply. But then when we're looking at trying to get out of the economic issues we're having now, I don't hear anybody calling for an expansion of supply. I hear a lot of people trying to destroy demand through higher interest rates, but I don't hear many people saying, why don't we soak up the new money that was created with more transactions of more goods and services? Why don't we look at regulations? Why don't we look at better tax regimes to boost economic growth so that a, a higher nominal GDP will eat up some of those dollars that would have been realized in inflation? Um, yeah, just wanted to bounce that off. It, it, is there a group which is advocating for that as a solution for inflation? Or why why are all eyes on the demand side? Well, there is a group, and that, that group is, uh, to the best of my knowledge, called the Bonson Group. Uh, <laughs> you know, I talk about it every day, and I've been fired up about it every day. And I have some friends in this cause as well. Um, I do have friends in the cause that agree with everything you just said and agree with my view on it but have not been articulating that agreement. Um, and what, what I would say is for various political reasons, you know, when, you're, when your opponent is, is suffocating, sometimes you're not supposed to give them a rope and it's been politically beneficial for some to really stick the inflation issue to Biden. And when you point out the supply constrictions and their primary causative role um, I think, unfortunately, uh, it has been too tempting for some to stick with the simple explanation that, you know, Biden, uh, we're, we're seeing high inflation under Biden, therefore he created it and caused it. And, and I, I think Biden's policies were um, really problematic here. But I, uh, I believe that under the nuance of what you said about diminished production. And I think both being 
wholly unprepared for the ramifications of shutdown and wholly unprepared for the ramifications of reopening, that one would dare to be surprised that there would be normalized demand at reopening and yet not normalized supply. And uh, the reason I think people are programmed to go straight to demand solutions is that the uh, Keynesians have been accepted as the consensus view and that somehow uh, reigniting consumption or trying to cool consumption is the basic task of the economist, of all economic thought. And I am extremely sad to say, I think that's the viewpoint of many on the right, not just the left. Yeah, I, I think it's treating all economic activity as equivalent as just a number to input into a function when nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, yeah, I think you're right about the political incentives to blame Biden. Listen, I don't like the guy much either, but I do want to be fair in um, what I think the causes of inflation are and be intellectually honest. If I was to take a, just a guess, a back of the envelope, to me, maybe you have a different, um, a different guess. But I'd say it seems at least early on to be about a 50-50 split, um, fiscal and monetary causes, and then the supply restriction. Um, I don't know. It would, where would you put those numbers? Yeah, I would say that, um, that to the degree we can now uh, retroactively model out where the price inflation was most um, concentrated and identifiable to certain policy decisions or, or realities, um, I would say that the excess inflation we had was 70% uh, uh, supply-oriented and 15% uh, fiscal and 15 monetary. And okay. that 100% or 99% of the 15% monetary was in housing. Mm. That very little of the price inflation outside of housing could be identified to um, the monetary policies. Now, significant uh, problems exist in the monetary policies of zero bound in QE, but I'm specifically referring to inflation. And, and I don't believe that one can say with a straight face that uh, the QE was inflationary this time, but not last time, this time, but not when Japan, you know, we have a lot of precedent for QE and none of it looked like what happened in 2021 with inflation. So I don't think much of it was monetary, but I do think the low uh, uh, interest rate environment fed the fuel of housing inflation. I'd love to talk to you for about 10 hours about Japan, um, <laughs> but I'll, let's circle back to uh, what you were talking about with the QE and the different types of monetary policy. I think a lot of people who just take an economics class get a view of how the Federal Reserve sets interest rates, which at this point is pretty outdated. The, uh, the role of paying interest on reserves, um, I, th th that's a huge change. That's something that I think is not even mentioned in most economics books. I mean, unless they were printed pretty recently. I don't really know what the impact of using that policy tool versus more traditional ones, you know, changing interbank uh, lending rates with open market activities or uh, doing discount window stuff. What do you think the long term consequences of using interest on reserves is going to be? 
Well, see, it depends because um, it, to answer that, you have to also have an answer as to what they're doing with other aspects of monetary policy. And so if they're doing QE1, QE2, QE3, and it was clearly um, a way of trying to manipulate the long end of the curve, and they didn't want to increase money in circulation, then paying interest on reserves was a great way to load up the excess reserves of the banks, um, use it as a policy tool to drive down borrowing costs long-term, but not really see it circulate. And so in that sense, interest on reserves was a very conscientious policy tool. Now, when you are trying to demand, are there banks that are not loaning money out because they're getting risk-free money with the reserves and um, then take on risk when they try to lend money out for net interest margin. Um, I think it does become a distorting force. I, I would say that most of the people that are against lending on, excuse me, paying on excess reserves should also be against charging on excess reserves, which is another policy tool that could be used and has been used in other countries to really try to simulate, uh, stimulate some form of loan demand and put pressure on the banks to loan money. But as I said a moment ago, I don't think um, that we have a problem as with banks not wanting to loan money as much as we do with borrowers not wanting to or not being able to borrow it. Okay. So let me, let me put another one. I don't know if this is a terrible question or not, but hey, you know, we have no filter here on this podcast. What stops somebody from opening up just a full reserve bank, keeping all their cash at the Fed, getting the, what is it, 4.75, possibly soon to be 5% interest on the reserves, and just being an intermediate between regular depositors and that Fed account, um, and just advertising complete security. Hey, we're just passing the interest direct to you consumers, and you have no fear at all. What, what causes someone, keeps someone from doing that? Yeah, because it seems Capital requirements. Capital requirements. So that's, a, the, that's a brutally low return on equity. Someone has to tie up an awful lot of capital to be a bank. And, and so the capital structure that's going to serve at the bottom stack of the cap stack of their own equity is never going to be satisfied with that return. And so yeah. with, with a bank capital structure, you have equity on the bottom. And then you have preferred on top of that. And then you have junior bondholders on top of that, senior bondholders on top of that, and depositors that make up the primary funding mechanism on the very top. And if okay. all you did was take deposits and then um, uh, receive the interest on the Fed, you would not be generating the cash flows to satisfy your cap stack. And so you need net interest margin and other financial activities to create a return on equity. The return on equity sits at the bottom and no capital provider will be satisfied with the return on equity that, that the model you described would, would provide. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So basically the equity guys would say, you're not leveraging this near enough to give us a reasonable cash flow. Well, they're not leveraging it at all. Right. Right. They're not, it's not even just leverage. They're not even acting. They're not even giving out free toasters. Right. You'd just be getting whatever spread you, you have between the Fed rate and then the whatever you want to entice depositors with. Correct. 
Okay. Now, on the other side, you have people advocating for things like free banking. Um, Where's your position come down on that? What's the opposition to there that you can see? Well, besides the constitutional restrictions that um, there are certain uh, uh, designated powers in the Constitution about the minting of money and so forth, um, I always find it ironic that some advocates of certain financial alternative financial structures are generally pretty purist about the constitution until it comes to this issue. Um, but look, I am, I, I've no, if all one meant by free banking and there are certain Austrian colleagues of mine that advocate for a form of free banking that really amounts to competition for capital competition for how one charges for capital and, and, and so forth and and more creative structures around deposit funds as well as um, debt capital. I'm all for anything that can be considered competitive. And yet um, when one talks about things, for example, like you say, free banking, oftentimes the conversation struggles for lack of specificity. Um, If we believe in individual people having the right to mint money, uh, outside the government, then obviously we have to amend the Constitution. Gotcha. And also it's that very could... difficult for me, by the way, um, to get animated about a topic of something that will never happen. Um, there's a lot of things that aren't happening now that I think should happen, and I'm animated because I think they could or will happen. But these various ideas of a totally and completely unregulated financial system um, are never going to happen. And therefore, it, despite, you know, as much as I generally enjoy certain armchair, you know, navel gazing around the theoretical, I do think that my time, I generally focus on things I think have a better practical, you know, chance of, of coming to fruition. And and so the the reality is, I want desperately to see the Fed humbled and moderated in its power and in its responsibilities. And yet I think I have a more realistic chance of doing that than I do of getting rid of the Fed. And so I would rather fight for the former than the latter. So it, it, monetary policy seems to be uh, seems to be the theme today. What exactly would you like to see change-wise for the Fed? Are we looking for um, like a Taylor rule, some other rule, uh, nominal GDP targeting, um, what would you like to say that do you think is within the realm of possibility? Yes. <laughs> that, that's my answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I do believe that there is really, really um, helpful and provocative and profitable debate and discussion about which rules-based approach would be optimal for a central bank. But until we acknowledge that we are in need of a rule, it's a little bit premature. And until we acknowledge what the rule would be about, because right now, Taylor rule uh, targets a certain setting of interest rates. And yet the Fed has taken on things far beyond the mere setting of interest rates. Mm -hmm. And so until we can get the Fed back to being a lender of last resort, and not a spender of last resort until we can get the Fed back to a position that is not um, attempting to take on the absurd with a dual mandate that ignores 
um, the third piece of that very legislation that codified a dual mandate, which is moderate interest rates, and and obsess over this notion of stable prices and full employment and acts as if these things are in tension with one another. Um, I believe that we are very little chance of getting the Fed uh, where I want it to be. But if we could somehow win those arguments, engage in constructive persuasion, and then get to a point where we said, where is it we do want to take a central bank? Then the answer is yes. I'd want to take it to a place of being a mere lender of last resort. And I am perfectly comfortable with interest rates being set on a rules-based approach and not, uh, and what I mean by this is overnight uh, lending to financial intermediaries um, as opposed to 12 people around a conference room table. And uh, the Taylor rule has a lot about it I like and nominal GDP targeting has a lot about it I like. And a commodity basket rule has a lot about it I like. So they're all forms of rules-based monetary policy that takes away this heavy level of discretion and intervention that we've had from our central bank for a long time now. You said something very interesting there, which I'm I'm in 100% agreement on. You implied that the the inflation and the full employment, these two are necessarily in opposition. I, th- I think it's the, was it the Phillips curve that, that seems to try to link the two. Can you kind of expand on that criticism? I can. Um, I can't do as good of a job as the last 50 years has done. <laughs> um, they said that high unemployment would push down inflation. And the 1970s said, no, it won't. And then they said that low unemployment would push up inflation. And the 1990s and the 2010s said, no, it won't. So the Phillips curve has gone decades being wrong on both the um, the high employment and, and low inflation side and vice versa. It's been wrong on both sides of the coin. But even apart from the testimony of history, the Phillips curve is philosophically wrong because if you believe, as I do, that inflation is too much money chasing too few goods and services, you can have an awful lot of employment from the production of more goods and services. And more goods and services is anti-inflationary. Awesome. So this seems to be them ignoring the supply side and only focusing on their Keynesian demand side equations. Ignoring it and holding it in disdain. And not only just their Keynesian solutions, there are plenty of people that um, could be Phillips curvers without necessarily being Keynesian fiscal interventionist. I don't think there usually are, but there certainly could be intellectually. But my point is that they view um, uh, growth as an enemy and they view um, production as uh, something that will follow consumption instead of consumption following production. I mean, you have to have something to trade in the market in order to have a market. Yeah. Um, you, you know, with the last few minutes here, um, I wanted to ask you a few things about taxes. There was something in the news recently about the uh, the fair tax. Now, I see a few weaknesses there. There are things that I like. Um, I don't think it's going to going to pass. But um, that does bring up the topic of consumption taxes in general or what your preferred tax regime would look like. 
Yeah, so you're, I, I am not an uh, advocate of the fair tax, but I do always feel that there are certain sympathies I have. If you like the idea um, or believe in the idea, our Laffer's famous dictum of when you tax more of something, you get less of it. When you tax less of something, you get more of it. Sure. And what I want is income and production and wealth creation and investment and savings and capital formation and innovation and ideas. Then you would think taxing those things less would get us more of them. Mm -hmm. um, and that by uh, if we get excessive indebtedness, leverage, uh, you know, silliness, poor allocation of capital from excessive consumption, then you would think putting a tax burden on the consumption side versus the production side. So right now we tax wage earners, income taxes and uh, investors with capital gain and dividend taxes. And then we tax businesses, which are the same as wage earners, but we're talking about entrepreneurs um, on the corporate tax code. And so I think that in theory, the fair tax is right to say, wouldn't we rather have the burden at one place than another? The problem is first political that there is no modeling I've ever seen ever that does not result in it being an incredibly regressive tax relative to the alternative and therefore politically, um, unsaleable, but far more than that, um, is the political reality not of, of uh, feasibility, but of the downside that if we did ever scrap our income tax system, replace it with a fair tax, I would start counting the days until we ended up with both. Mm -hmm. That's what I believe would happen is that we would pass a national sales tax. And then um, uh, if we have not addressed the spending elephant in the room, if we have not right-sized government and government continues to spend outside its means, it would only be a matter of time till someone said, hey, the income tax worked for 100 years. Let's bring that back. And in the meantime, we're getting this fair tax stuff going. And um, people say, well, yeah, we would just codify it in the law that we couldn't do it. And and I think that the, there's a lot of naivete there. Mm -hmm. yep. Well, I'll let you, um, I, I know that we're running out of time here. So if you have any last thoughts or want to circle back to anything that we discussed, uh, feel free. Well, look, you covered a lot of ground. And I hope my comments on the Fed, on banking, on freedom, on first things have been useful to people. Um, I appreciate you touting my book at the beginning. Uh, There's no free lunch. 250 Economic Truths is just meant to be rather than an hour of you and I talking about some of these heavier concepts. I'm just taking one page per day to kind of cover one paragraph of um, a general introduction to economics, uh, you know, compartmentalized by different subjects. So that book, I think, opens up the door to going into some of this more. And I've really enjoyed your thoughtful questions. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining me today. I'm sure the uh, listeners enjoyed it too. And one more time, I'll say Capital Record is your podcast. And at this precise moment, it is my favorite one 